Uh, one of my favourite uh, stories comes from this book uh, called Right Side Up. It's a parable about two brothers, Graham and Gilbert Adamson. Uh, two brothers who live in upside down land, a place where instead of walking on your feet, everybody walks on their hands. Every now and again, uh, someone would suggest, you know, turning things around and using your feet for walking instead of feeding. But, but quick as a flash, the replies would always come. That's gross. Dirty feet means dirty food. Or uh, perhaps your old Aunt Ethel tried that once and you don't want to end up like her. And two people lived in that land with Graham and Gilbert and they were very happy with their lives. After all, they were quick on their hands. Both were picked first for the Australian Rules handball team. Uh, Gifted musicians, their mother said they had toes like their great-grandmother, the famous concert pianist. Even the girls said they were dreamy when everyone cared to ask, and let's be honest, even when they didn't. Graham and Gilbert were happy with their lives. And to be honest, there, there was simply no good reason for them to change. Until it is the day that he came, the day he walked in the class. They can still remember the way their teacher, old uh, Mrs. Milvert, had tried to introduce him. Uh, uh, class, uh, she had said nervously, we have a new student joining us today and, well, um, I'd just like to say a few words before he comes in. And a hush falls over the room. Everyone could tell this was going to be good. Our new classmate, she continued, well, he's from the country. Already sniggers from the back of the class, just like a couple here at the front of the class. And he's done really very well at his old school and he's very friendly. But, but, Gilbert turned to Graham, he's just a little different. A few more sniggers from the back of the class. So please keep quiet and don't laugh when he comes in. Godbert, she called. And in he walked. On his feet. Well, for a moment or two it seemed that Mrs. Milvert might actually, perhaps for the very first time in that class, get obedience. There was no laughter. In fact, there was no sound. Just stunned, complete silence. Until at last, one of those two brothers, Gilbert, yelled out, He's upside down! And at that, the whole class lost it. To this day, nobody can remember just how long it took for the principal to arrive and finally restore order, but eventually he did. But but of course, that was only the start for Godbert. The brothers G made it their mission to make his life a misery. Snodbert Dirtfeet III, they called him. Get dizzy up there, Snodbert, they'd say. It seemed every afternoon that there they'd be waiting for him to, to tackle him, steal his shoes. And, Try running home now, you weirdo. Bet you can't run with bare feet, you loser. But every time it was the same non-resistance. Every time the same non-retaliation. Every time the same bowing. Eyes closed, strange kind of smile on his face. Finally got too much for the brothers. What's wrong with you? One of them asked. Do you really want to know? 
replied Godbert. Now, to be honest, they actually didn't really want to know. and They already knew why. The guy was a nutcase. A few uh, slices short of a loaf. But, you know, just for fun. Sure, they said. Why don't you tell us? It's because of the maker, Godbert simply said. It's because it's how he made us. We weren't made to walk on our hands or to laugh at people for that matter. We were made to be like him. Made to live different to the way most people do. Made to love people like you when you hate people like me. Love, shot Gilbert, you gay or something. My love isn't about sex, Gilbert went on. It's, it's about treating people as people and, and about living right side up. Well, it was all too much for Gilbert. He just threw the shoes back at Gilbert, sort of spat at him and walked off. But, but for Graham, it was different. It was kind of weird. You're going to destroy yourself hanging out with that boy? Mrs. Adamson would go on to say to Graham. First it'll be the maker isn't so bad, and next thing you'll be turning upside down and walking around like a monkey. And strange thing was, she was right. And the lectures kept coming, the warnings kept coming, but there was just something about Godbert. Something right. And Graham knew it. As time marched on, I think it was six months later, Graham did it. At last. For the first time in his life, he, he turned his life upside down. Or as Godbert would describe it, right side up. It wasn't easy, of course. It was hard being different. He was treated as different. But, but the thing is, he knew it was worth it. And best of all, he, he knew the maker. He knew the maker loved him. And he now wanted to live for him. And he wanted to live like him. As we come again to another sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, especially to our passage tonight, I want to say we come to a situation, perhaps better yet, an invitation not so different to the one Graham faced from Godbert. An invitation to live right side up. To live as salt and light, as we heard two weeks ago. To live with Pharisee exceeding righteousness, as we heard one week ago. To live with the, with the perfect perfection of the Father, we'll hear next week. See, I wonder if you've noticed how this particular section in the Sermon on the Mount is framed the section we began last week, the section we'll continue next week. In the verses immediately before this section, they're chapter 5, verse 20. If you've got to have a look, chapter 5, verse 20. We're called to have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees. In the verses immediately after it, there, chapter 5, verse 48, chapter 5, verse 48, we're told, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Righteousness at the start, perfection at the end, and everything in between is how to do that. How do you live rightly before God? How do you live perfectly like the Father? Not, not to earn your place in the kingdom and, and, and not pretending you never make mistakes, but because we've already been forgiven, because as we heard two weeks ago, ours is the kingdom of heaven. 
How do you do it? How do you do it in particular when it comes to sex and to marriage? Well, here, Matthew 5, from verse 27, Jesus tells us. And to sum it up about as brief as you can, what he tells us is this, is that sex is for marriage only. It's there in your outlines. And marriage is for life always. Sex is for marriage only. And marriage is for life always. Verse 27. You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. Way back in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, very first chapters of the Bible, God gives his blueprint for marriage, his blueprint for sex. There we discover, contrary to the expectations so many in our age that assume that sex and even marriage kind of took God by surprise, as though he never saw them coming, as though God created man, created woman, put them there naked in paradise, stepped away and then came back and went, oh, good Lord, or or more likely perhaps, oh my goodness, (laughs) what are you doing? We discover that sex and marriage are God's idea. He invented them. He designed them. Perhaps most importantly of all, certainly these verses in front of us, he designed them to go together. Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. See, marriage by God's design is one man and one woman from different families for life. And sex by God's design is for that union. And not just in the sense, which we often hear, that the best place for sex is marriage, or that the context for sex is marriage, or that the relationship sex belongs in is marriage, but even more profoundly, and in fact, the reason those things are true is because the Bible insists that the purpose of sex is marriage. Sex is given by God to help bind marriages together to assist their one fleshiness. That's what sex is for. As it was described to me in my university days, from places like 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7, sex is God's relational superglue designed to stick one man to one woman for the rest of their lives. And you see, that's why adultery is always so devastating. And that's why adultery is always so wrong. The characters on our TV screens, they jump, don't they, from one bed to another bed and then from one bed to another bed and no one gets hurt. And in fact, no one seems to mind, or at least not for more than one episode, but here's the thing. Those TV shows aren't real. Just in case you didn't know that. It's a lie. I once spoke on a a similar topic to this to an elderly congregation a number of years ago and I can still remember one beautiful older lady coming to me after the service to tell me that some 40 years after the fact she still felt the pain of her husband's adultery. Adultery takes what God designed to stick marriages together and it uses it to tear marriages apart and it scars people for life. And so God says, as Jesus quotes there from Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, he rightly says, do not, we need to hear this, do not ever, it's different than what the TV tells us, do not commit adultery. 
Do not sleep with someone who is not your husband. Do not sleep with someone who is not your wife. And then hear what Jesus says, what he rightly says, verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, or perhaps better as some translations put it, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent, whoever looks at another in order to desire them, that's why you're looking, has already committed adultery in his heart. See, it's not enough to keep your bed free from another man, another woman, Jesus says. You must keep your mind, you must keep your heart free also. Now we need to be clear on what Jesus is saying here. I take it he is not saying you must not find the opposite sex attractive. Nor is he saying you must never be attracted to the opposite gender. I can still remember, I think, the first preacher I ever heard on this sort of thing tell us, if you're never attracted attracted to the opposite gender, it's probably time to go and visit the doctors. It's good to have desire for the opposite sex. It's right to have desire for the opposite sex. The question is, what are you doing with that desire? Where are you directing that attraction? Where are you looking when you are looking? Why are you looking, particularly for these verses here, why are you looking when you were looking? See, I don't think Jesus is condemning here those unwanted, spontaneous thoughts that spring to our minds. Instead, what I think he's condemning is our nurturing of those thoughts, our feeding of those thoughts, our intentional desiring of someone who is not ours to desire, namely who is not is our husband, who is not our wife. Be they the guy or the girl jogging past in the incredibly unhelpful jogging outfit. The guy or the girl there on our computer screen. The guy or the girl there in the romantic novel. The guy or the girl up there on the billboard or there in the advertising or there in our Facebook or there in our TV screens. That, Jesus says, your intentional, willful desiring of them those who are not yours to desire, that, Jesus says, is adultery in your heart. Now again, let's be clear on what Jesus is saying. He's not saying it could lead to adultery in your heart or somewhere else. I've actually heard the passage preached this way before. Best not leer at that pretty woman. Best not fantasize about that man. Best not watch that movie or music video or even that pornography because it might lead you to sin. Let's not do the looking because it might lead to the touching. That's not what Jesus says. He says, do you see it there? The leering, the fantasizing, the watching as it causes you to desire someone who is not yours to desire, that itself is sinful, even if it's on the inside. Sex is for marriage only. It says in your outlines, therefore no adultery, not even in your heart, Seriously. See, some of us might want to come back to Jesus and say, easy for you to say, Jesus. Or or maybe, easy for you to say 2,000 years ago, Jesus. Have you seen the world we're living in? Have you seen what they put on the billboards? Do you understand the pressure my friends put on me? I mean, seriously? To which Jesus would reply, verse 29, yes, seriously. Take this command seriously. Take radical costly action to seriously guard your heart. Verse 29, if you're right, I cause you to sin. Take a spoon 
gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better if you lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, take a saw, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now I take it Jesus doesn't actually want us to get a spoon or a saw. But what he definitely does want us to do is to take radical, costly action to guard our hearts to cut off the supply line of lust to our hearts. question we often get asked on the campus, especially when it comes to sex and to intimacy. I wonder if you've ever asked this is, how far can I go? What's the line? You know what the great news is from this part of the Bible? Great news from Jesus? There is no line. Jesus says you can go, indeed you must go, all the way. To guard your heart from lust. There should be no sacrifice you are not willing to make to guard your heart from lust. See, Facebook feeding your lust? Unsubscribe. Is the internet feeding your lust? Disconnect. Are M-rated movies unhelpful for you? Don't ever watch them again. Oh, oh, but we say, I couldn't do that. What would my friends think? I'd be a social outcast. It is better for you to lose one part of your body, or for that matter, even your popularity, than for your whole body to go into hell. I remember chatting to a young guy from uni about his struggle with pornography. And we spoke of the grace of God. We remembered Jesus' death. We prayed for his forgiveness. And then we talked about how he could cooperate with Jesus who seeks to make him more like him. Would you be willing to move your computer into a public room of your house? Yes, can do that. Would you be willing to use that accountability software so others can see what you're seeing? Yes, I'll do that. Would you be willing to make your girlfriend one of your accountability partners so she can see what you can see? And there should be no price we are not willing to pay to guard our heart from lust. That's what Jesus is saying. A couple of tips to help. One, trust God. He really does know what's best. He really does want what's best for us. His no's always protect his yeses. His no's always protect you. My Isabel walks into the kitchen. She sees the saucepan boiling on the stove. It's going to be very confusing for little Isabel. It's a pretend up story, my darling, just to make a point. Isabel walks in the kitchen. She sees the saucepan boiling on the stove. She doesn't know there's water boiling inside it, but she sees the saucepan and she knows, like we all know, if you want to make a good sound, all you need is two saucepans to bang together. So what does she do? Well, she stands under it and she reaches up for the saucepan, but she can't quite reach it, so we'll get up on the toes and we use both hands to grab the saucepan and Erica walks in. And what does Erica do? 
What does her mum who loves her do? She says, no, stop. That ain't good for you. And what's more, that ain't really what it's supposed to be used for. Because she wants to kill a fun. Nice one, mum, killjoy mum. Of course not, because she knows what's best. She wants what's best for the child that she loves, and so does God. He says, no adultery, not even in your heart. Trust him. Second thing, decide beforehand. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Can I say, do the same? Decide now, whether you're a guy or a girl, before the temptation comes, before the pressure's on, before the little thumbnail turns up on the internet, before you're channel serving, in fact, maybe best just don't channel serve it. Before the billboard comes on the horizon, before whatever it is that lures you into lust, decide beforehand as a forgiven child of God not to do it. And third thing, take action. One of the best things I've done in recent weeks, I highly recommend this, is to install Adblock on my computer so I no longer get any ads from anyone, anywhere, especially on Facebook. I don't see all that stuff I don't want to see. I don't get tempted to desire what it's not mine to desire. In our staff teams, every staff member has to have accountability software on their computer. Is that an action you could take? If it's not that, what is it for you? What would it take? Even the social suicide action, whatever it is, take it. I even had Erica stick a little cardboard square over the front of one of her cookbooks once. Because I just found myself looking at the sort of bikini cookbook lady standing in the front. Not a massive sacrifice, but... But whatever it is for you, seriously, whatever it is for you, do it. Take this command from God as seriously as God takes it. In fact, let's go further than that, not just for your own sake, for others' sake too. Take action in the way that you dress perhaps for girls especially, but probably for guys too, be willing to be less fashionable and therefore less seductive to help the fellas. And fellas, be willing to relate differently. Be careful and therefore less seductive in the way you speak, in the way you touch, in the way you seek the eye contact of another, no matter how good it makes you feel. Help one another in this. Take it as seriously as God does. See, sex is for marriage only, therefore no adultery. Not even in your heart, seriously. And marriage is for life, always. Therefore no divorce, not as initiated by you, seriously. Now before we look at these verses, a few things to say. The first is to acknowledge the hurt and pain of divorce. If divorce is part of your life, either because like some people in my family, you're a divorcee, or like some people in our staff team at uni, you're a child of divorce, we want to say that our heart, like God's heart, breaks for you. We are sorry for your pain, and this is not supposed to make your pain worse. Second thing is to admit that we're not going to say everything the Bible has to say about divorce tonight, not here. For starters, I don't know it all, and if you did, now is not really the time to say it all. There's a question time later, you got more questions, ask them then. Tonight what we're going to do is focus on what Jesus says here, and there is more to say. 
Third thing is remember before we begin talking about divorce, the complete and free forgiveness of God for all people. There are none of us here, none of us here, too bad to receive God's forgiveness in Jesus. And there are none of us here too good to need it. But now the verses, verse 31. It has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, or or perhaps better, causes her to be the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, it seems there was an argument amongst the rabbis in the day of Jesus about when divorce was permitted. What were the reasons that made divorce okay? What are the rules for doing divorce right? You can see something there there in verse 31. Is a certificate of divorce enough? Is that all we need? Just, Just a matter of making it legal? Does that make it right? You see it in Matthew 19 too. Where, ah, half the question, I'll read the beginning to you. Well, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, what if you notice here, as you often notice in the Gospels, that Jesus' reply isn't really a reply. The Pharisees come asking for permissions. Jesus replies by speaking of intentions. They want to know, when can we justify divorce? And what does Jesus do? He simply reminds them of God's lifelong pattern of divorce. And that's what he's doing, pattern of marriage. Thanks for mouthing the correct words at the back, John Hyun. He reminds them of God's lifelong pattern for marriage. That's what he's doing here in the Sermon on the Mount as well. He's not talking permissions. He's not trying to lay out all the permissions. He's simply reminding us that marriage is for life always. That's God's intention. Therefore, no divorce not as initiated by you. Seriously. See, I think that's what happens there with the except for marital unfaithfulness bit there. That's not there because he wants to give you the out clause. That's not your justifiable permission. Now, I think that reason that that's there, I think that because in the case of marital unfaithfulness, the fact is the spouse has already effectively divorced you. Why is divorce okay for you in that case? Because they've already left you. They've divorced you. But if they haven't left you, Jesus wants you to hear, don't you leave them. That's Jesus' point. Even as he uses that extreme language of the wife made the victim of adultery by your divorcing her, I think what he's trying to do is underline that main point again and again and again. He's trying to say again, don't do it. Seriously, don't do it. Do everything you possibly can to save your marriage, Jesus says. And of course, not just when things go wrong, of course, but much, much before then, do everything you can to nurture your marriage. And I know some of you aren't married here, but one day many of you will be. Some of us are married here. We need to hear this. Read how to do marriage well. Learn how to do marriage well. 
Give time to doing marriage well. Spend money on doing marriage well. Make sacrifices on doing marriage well. And whatever you do, if you're here tonight and you're not married and one day you choose to be, marry a fellow believer. Marry someone else who with you will listen to Jesus. Jesus who says marriage is for life, always. Therefore no divorce, not as initiated by you, seriously. Can I say, not only seriously, but wonderfully. See, this is the good news of the kingdom. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, I think, Matthew described what was about to happen. Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. See, this is how you live right side up in sex and marriage. I've told some of you before, when Eric and I have an argument on those rare occasions, my darling and I have an argument, one of the things one of us will try to say to the other is, you know you're stuck with me, right? You know death's the only way out of this sucker, don't you? Usually trying to make sure the other one's not standing too close to the kitchen knives to speed up that process. But no, I admit that doesn't sound altogether romantic. It's not likely to turn up in Hallmark anytime soon. But I've got to tell you, we've found that one of the most helpful things we can say. Why? Because it reminds us there are no easy outs to this. This is, as Jesus said, for life. So we better get on with forgiving and being forgiven, with loving and being loved and swallowing our pride. Famous Christian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote once to newlyweds, it's not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that is your commitment to one another, your commitment to never leave, that actually sustains your love. Tim Keller writes, real love, the Bible says, instinctively desires permanence. And that's what Jesus calls his disciples too. This is sex and marriage right side up. Bottom line, sex is for marriage only. Marriage is for life always. And that's the good news of the kingdom. I'll pray. If you've got questions, please text them.